A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part two in the story of the Jewish history in Toronto, in our ongoing series of great American and, I guess, Canadian Jewish uh, cities. So this part two has been generously sponsored. Lili Nishma Zev ben Elchanan Avigdor and Daniel ben Mordechai Rubinstein and Shlomo Yehuda ben Moshe Eugene Kohn, who were both, the latter two, who were both very instrumental instrumental in building the Frum infrastructure and Yiddishkeit in Toronto after the war. So we left off in part one. We're going profiling what I found to be an amazing list of of the uh, some of the great rabbinical personnel. And of course, I'm not going to even cover all of them. Just choosing a select few um, of the rabbinical personalities who left an impact on Jewish life in Toronto. And we're focusing last time primarily on pre-war and a little bit touched on on post-war. Rabbi Price and want to. To speak, uh, start off, continue that list uh, now, and hopefully get to some other aspects of Toronto Jewish life as well. Um, one of the um, interesting uh, rabbinical dynasties, as it were, almost uh, who made it to Toronto was Rabbi Dov Yehuda Shochat, who was actually born in 1905 in Tells, and he was a student of the Tells Yeshiva. He was a close student of Rabbi Yosef Le Bloch, and um, and he and he was involved in the publishing of his his rabbis. He was later a rabbi in Switzerland, and that's where he he spent the war years. And then he was also the rabbi in Holland, um, in the Netherlands. And then they move to Toronto in the nineteen fifties. And he was a rabbi there until his passing in nineteen seventy four. Now, while there, and also an interesting story, he becomes a chassid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And um, and he was related. He's related to with one of the, the Rebbe's secretaries, and um, and Rebbe, Rebbe, so Rabbi Shochet becomes uh, um, a a uh, a Lubavitcher Chassid, and then his son Rabbi Yaakov Emanuel Shochet was very educated, had a PhD. He was born during the years that his rabbi his father was the rabbi in Switzerland. And he goes to the time Chetamim Yeshiva. By that time, they're already Chabad, and he becomes the rabbi in the Keltzer Shul in Toronto. 
author of many books, someone actually on the history of Chabad, interestingly enough. He was a very vocal individual, very outspoken. And other sons of, of Rabbi Shochat became rabbis as well. Rabbi David Shochat is currently still a rabbi there. Um, so the Shochat dynasty became uh, very active in building Chabad life. Also, there was a Shliach uh, who arrived there in the 1970s, Rabbi Zalman Grossbaum, and he continued to build the Chabad institutions, the schools, yeshivas, the girls' schools, a very developed infrastructure. Another rabbi I mentioned in part one, um, there was Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was there for several years. When Rabbi Yaakov left to move to New York, in the late 1940s. So the one who took him over um, was a fellow by the name of Rabdavid Ox. Ox, Ook, Ox, I think, it's how pronounce it. I hope so. Excuse me. So he was born in Galicia. Um, so going back to Galician or uh, uh, family. A chart of Hasidim, he makes it to Vienna with his family during World War One, like many others in that area. He became an Agudist, member of the Agudist Yisrael, and he actually had a distinction when he was a rabbi in Vienna uh, he had the largest dafyoyim shir in the entire Vienna. When Mayor Shapiro came to Vienna, he would attend uh, his dafyoyim shir, which is you know Mayor Shapiro's baby, obviously dafyoyim, and uh, he would speak, use that as his platform to make a speech. So, following the Nazi Anschluss, when they entered Vienna, they entered Austria on March 12, 1938. So, he escapes to England. He became a rabbi in Manchester. And eventually, he made it to Toronto, where he replaced Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky as the rabbi of the Torres MS community. And he was a big fighter for uh, developing uh, um, Jewish education in Toronto, raising the standards of orthodoxy. He taught himself English to be able to relate to the younger generation. He Excuse me. Felt that the goal of the of a rabbi post-war should be able to uh, make it to be relatable to the youth of the of the town of the city, um, and he was a very successful in that endeavor because he became beloved as an old world figure who was able to relate to the modern uh, new generation, and he was definitely one of the uh, unquestionably one of the most influential post-war rabbis in Toronto, especially in the areas of kashrus and education. I got to say that there's. There's so many rabbis who were uh, who made an impact in Toronto. There's been a book written uh, about the prominent uh, sages of, of of the city of Toronto, and, and and you can purchase that book and see all the different stories there. And obviously, I won't be able to get into all of them, so I'm just going to give continue giving a sampling of some of the gems that I was able to find. Another rabbi. Um, who's buried in Toronto, actually, also. A lot of these rabbis are, are buried, buried in the cemeteries of, of, of uh, the Jewish cemeteries of the city. Um, so, Bavram Shmultzvi Silverstein, who came from Radomsk, uh, a grandson of uh, Radomsk Enikel. And uh, he was a rabbi in Poland, in, in Radomsk areas of Poland, before he immigrates uh, to Toronto in 1928, and he became one of the heads of the Vatara Bonim, uh, which was being organized at the time. And... Uh, he shortly afterwards he immigrated to Israel, which was Palestine then. But he came back. He returns to to, to Toronto a couple of years later. It didn't work out in Palestine, so uh, he remained there until 1951, till his passing. Um, he wrote several sfarim. Um, then one of the central prominent rabbis uh, in Toronto, uh, who I mentioned in passing in part one, was Rabbi Gedalia Felder, and he was born in Galicia in 1921. He studies in the Radomsk Kesser Teiri Yeshiva, but his father brings the family over to Toronto in 1937 when he was a teenager. 
So who does he study by? By our hero from part one, or by Ram Aaron Price in the Torah's Chaim Yeshiva, and he's the one who he received a smicha from. In the 1940s, he was rabbi of several small towns in Ontario. He also served as a chaplain in the Canadian Air Force. I didn't even know that Canada even had an Air Force, but apparently they do. And then he returns to Toronto by the end of the decade. And he becomes the rabbi of the Galicianer Shemri Shabbos Shul, and he teaches Torah at, at the Torah's Chaim Yeshiva. And he was involved with the Eitz Chaim, which also I'll get to. He ran the Vat HaKashras. He was affiliated with the Mizrahi. Uh, Toronto was very prominent, actually, in its Zionism, uh, across its leadership, rabbinical leadership, and lay leadership, and, and the rank and file also. Very interesting, another phenomenon. Um, and he also served on a citywide interdenominational rabbinical board. And what's interesting is that his six-volume book, Yesayde Yeshurun, became a rabbinic halachic classic and it was widely used and very popular for a long time. He wrote other uh, books as well. His son, Rabbi Arnfeld, was a very famous Sapaisic in Philadelphia. Um, with the post-war comes new, Im- new immigrants and we have our first uh, Hungarian Jewish presence and a grandson I met, had recently a an episode I had a, a, about the uh, the Chust, the, the Arugas Abaisem, Rabbi Shah Greenwald, and, and the Chust dynasty with Puppa and Salem and the Greenwald family. So you can refer to that. But one of the ones who I did not mention, because I was saving him up for the Toronto episode, was Rameir Grunwald, who is the son of Rabbi Ram Yosef Greenwald and the brother of the last Chusterov, who I spoke about that time, Rabbi Yeshua Grunwald, we mentioned recently. And this Rameir Grunwald also survived the Holocaust, lost his entire family, unfortunately. And he comes to Toronto and he becomes the rabbi of the Heimish, the emerging uh, Hungarian Hasidic Heimish uh, community in Toronto after the war. He started Yeshiva, Shleime Muni Yisrael, and becomes uh, a builder of, 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 uh, of the post-war immigration, the survivors, uh, and very influential in that uh, area of the community uh, as well. And speaking of... Excuse me. Uh, speaking of that um, that aspect of, of Toronto Jewish life, so I can mention several earlier Hasidic rabbis who mentioned who came to Toronto even before the war. In fact, one of the first rabbis to come to the United to, to the North America altogether were two brothers from the Stretton Hasidic dynasty, the Langner brothers. Um, Stretton came from Rabuli Strelisk, from the Chayzu Lublin, an old dynasty in Galicia that split into many, many smaller factions. Um, and uh, Reb Moshe Langner was Stretton Kosova, that was the branch that he was in charge of. And it was in a, a he and his brother, Reb Yitzhak Isaac Langner, moved at the same time to, in 1920, to, to uh, North America. Reb Yitzhak Isaac moved to the Lower East Side. And Reb Moshe Langner moved to Toronto. And uh, he was pretty much the first Rebbe in Toronto. And his, his daughter eventually married Rebbechen and Tversky of, uh, of, uh, um, uh, of Tolna, uh, the Tolna Rebbe. Uh, he was the, his father was the, was the first uh, Tolna Rebbe to arrive in the Lower East Side. Eventually there were three Tolna Rebbes in America, another one in Philadelphia, another one in Boston. But the first one to come, even before World War I, came to the Lower East Side. And his son, Rebbechen and Tversky, married uh, the daughter of Reb Moshe Langen, the Stretton Rebbe, this, this Tolna Rebbe eventually settled in Montreal, but his, but the wedding, which was in Toronto, was a huge deal in the Jewish press at the time. Rameir Shapiro was the Shadchan. Rameir Shapiro, again, the Galicia connection to Stretton. 
Um, uh, and this threatened the Rebbe, Rebbe Maisha Langner. He remained in Toronto for nearly four decades. His son, Rebbe Avram, succeeded him as the Stratner Rebbe in Toronto, passed away shortly after his father, just a couple of years later. But his brother, Yitzhak Isaac, and other brothers, they were uh, succeeded uh, their father as well. So Stratton became a very Toronto uh, Hasidic dynasty. I also found... Another rabbi who lived in Toronto, Rabbi Naftali Horowitz. Now, Naftali Horowitz is a legendary name in the Hasidic movement because it was the name of the Rapshitzer. In fact, I think it was one of the first episodes I ever did. By the way, I think it's the second anniversary of Jewish history soundbites. And, you know, we're always big on huge celebrations here, so that's the extent of the celebration, is I'll acknowledge that fact. Um, uh, so I think one of the first episodes I ever did was on the Rapshitzer. So this is a descendant, direct descendant, Reb Naftali Horowitz, his namesake, both first and last names, through the Linsk branch, branch, excuse me, from, from the Rapshitzer. He ends up in Toronto somehow, and he passes away in 1928 in a big aisle in the cemetery. There are actually several other Hasidic Rebbes who made their way to Toronto over the years. It's something to talk about uh, as well. Um, one of the other refugees who comes... Uh, as a, in, in the, because of the Nazi rise to power was Rabbi Walter Wurzberger. He came as a refugee from Germany and he was later one of the leaders of modern orthodoxy in America, NYU, and he was one of the heads of the RCA. He had a PhD from Harvard and he was a rabbi in Toronto for 13 years from 1953 to 1956 at the Shari Shamayim Synagogue, which was founded in 1928. It was one of the older shuls in, uh, in uh, Toronto, one of the prominent ones. And he was a leader in Toronto Jewish life before he became uh, prominent on the national scene when he moved back t- uh, to America, t- to New York. Um, I want to leave the list of rabbis for a few minutes, uh, or you know, to maybe just because it doesn't end, I want to speak a little bit about the institutions um, that were built in Toronto Jewish life uh, over the years. One of the earliest ones was a shul with one of the greatest names for a shul that I that I ever heard, of the Holy Blossom Shul. This is a 19th century. We're actually turning back the clock. I was already talking about rabbis of the mid-20th century. Now we're going to have to move back the clock another hundred years to start tracing institutions. We're moving from personalities to institutions, a whole different track. Um, so we're going to the different shuls and other uh, schools and, and other Jewish institutions that were established by the Jewish community, so we're going to again start from the beginning. So it was opened in 1856, the Holy Blossom Shul. Before the Eastern European Jews arrived, it's started by German Jews, and it was nicknamed because of that the Deutsche Shul, the Deutsche Shul, the, the German Shul. And uh, originally it was Orthodox, and it was actually one of the original donors stipulated that the Sefer Torah that they're donating to the shul is on condition that it remain Orthodox, which it did not fulfill, because it became Reform in the 1920s. But for the first 60, 70 years, it, it, would, it was a very gradual process. It sort of became Reform over the years. Um, once it became Reform, so the, the rabbis, uh, it was a rabbi Bar- Barnett Brickner, and then later Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath, the latter, Rabbi, rabbi Eisendrath, when he when he's hired as the reform rabbi of Holy Blossom in uh, in the nineteen late twenties or early thirties, so he was shocked when he arrived because officially this is a reform temple, and yet because it was such a gradual process of turning an Orthodox shul into reform. It didn't happen in one day, and it wasn't originally built that way, so it was very gradual. So many congregants still 
covered their heads during prayer services, which is you know unheard of in a reformed temple. So he uh, helped that uh, he helped it shift towards reform. His his response was to walk in on Rosh Hashanah bareheaded to show that this is a reformed temple and we don't do these orthodox customs of of covering the hair. Um, uh, one of the early uh, important institutions. In, uh, established in uh, Toronto was the Eitz Chaim schools. It's uh, well over a hundred years ago, well over, much older than a century old. It was early years of the 20th century. It was started as the, the first cheder in Toronto. Rebutal Rosenberg, who I mentioned in part one, was involved. It was, it was housed in the Elm Street Shul. And it started as an afternoon school, as most of these types of day schools originally did. They were not full full hours, but it was following public school hours. Reb Leibish Noble was one of the early Rebbe's there for many decades. In 1917, it got its own building, and it became an official school. 1921, with Rabbi Yehuda Leib Graubert, who I mentioned in part one, with his arrival, so he oversaw the school, and that's when it starts to change. He really builds it up. It was associated with the Polish Jewish community of Toronto, which was the dominant uh, f- uh, faction of the community uh, until today, really. And several aspects of the uh, uh, curriculum set it apart from similar afternoon Talmud Torahs, which were so common in North American North American cities at that time. It made Eitz Chaim actually unique and different. Uh, first of all, it had Gemara Gemara classes, which uh, most uh, afternoon Talmud Torahs did not. It had pretty intense hours. Uh, there was four hours four times a week, plus six hours on Sunday, and it also went through the summer months. So, and, and not only that, but in the 1920s, it already had a girls' division, which was quite rare uh, for these Talmud Torahs to have. So, it was definitely a pioneer in many in many respects. It had 600 students by 1938, with close to a third paying full tuition, despite the fact that it was during the Great Depression. Um, in 1939, again, very early on, they opened up Yeshiva Smaharil Graubert, named after Yudalev Graubert, which was an evening Yeshiva high school for boys, 14 and older, who were graduates of Eitz Chaim, and Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was the rabbi who took over Yudalev Graubert, I mentioned in part one, was the Rosh Yeshiva. So again, one of the first Yeshiva high schools, even though it was started only as an evening, but it's still one of the first Yeshiva high schools. The 1940s saw the addition of a kindergarten and eventually becomes a full day school and then a full day high school and became an official Yeshiva and had had affiliate institutions, Tyrus MS. Late 1950s, it builds two new buildings. It, it literally doesn't stop expanding. One was built by the philanthropist Julius Kuhl and another by the philanthropist Avram Bleeman, um, both of whom hopefully we'll get to. It oversaw the girls' program develop into a full-time girls' school, followed by a Beis Yaakov High School in the 1960s under its auspices. Amazing development of this full gamut of an institution, full community education and involvement. It became the Toronto educational premier uh, institution. Um, We go back to the immigration of the Jews from Russia, from Galicia. So they start to build shuls at the turn of the century. There's the Goel Tzedek, uh, a shul of the Litvaks. There's the base Medrash HaGadol of Hevra Tehillim, the Shaimri Shabbos, Beth Jacob, which is the Polish shul, Adas Adaf Israel, which was Romanian Jews. There was also a shul called Minsk, Anshe Minsk. And Anshe Minsk, the people from Minsk who built this shul, they kept the name tags on the seats were the same as where they had sat back in Minsk. The shul still exists. 
It was built in 20 in what was then the center of the Jewish neighborhood by immigrants from Mintz, and it was supposed to be an exact replica of the shul they had left behind. Like I said, they even kept the same uh, seat places. That's how much they felt connected to their uh, town, their city that they left behind. The building, the actual structure was supposed to replicate what the shul they had used in Minsk in the exterior as well as the interior, even the furniture and the murals that were painted on the walls. Ironically, Rebecca Kamenetsky, who was originally from Minsk, was Dolhinov, but he also lived in Minsk, he was not affiliated with this shul, but he actually lived down the block during the years that he was in, uh, in Toronto. Um, by the start of World War II, there were 21 Jewish schools in Toronto, mostly afternoon Talmud Torahs, employing nearly 100 teachers, giving instruction to nearly 3,000 Jewish children, which constituted 40% of the Jewish school-age population of the city, which is pretty impressive. Um, uh, I mentioned in part one, besides for Yeshivas Maril Grober, there was also Yeshivas Teres Chaim of uh, Rabbi Price. Uh, much later, there were other Yeshivas that... Uh, that uh, that that uh, Toronto uh, came to be host of uh, in the 1950s. In 1959, there was open a branch of Neri Yisrael in Baltimore. Um, it was founded by a close student of Rav Ruderman, Rav Shalom Gold. In 1959, he opens a branch of Neri Yisrael and eventually ceased to be a branch of of Neri Yisrael. That was a gradual process. Um, but also, he Rav Shalom Gold also was a... Uh, uh, he ceased to be the Rashiva. That was a whole story, also. But um, at one point, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, the the uh, Rosh Hashiva of later the Rashiva Neri Israel, and the son-in-law of Rav Ruderman, he was a Rosh Hashiva there for several years in the 1960s in in Toronto. Later, Rav Tali Friedler, um, who was the Rosh Hashiva there. Later, Gabriel Ginsburg. Uh, also prominent, very prominent names in the uh, American Torah world um, at that time um, became, were Rosh Yeshiva, served as Rosh Yeshiva of Neri Yisrael, Toronto. Later on, you had a mirror, Reb Chaim Endel Brodsky, was son-in-law of Nachum Partsavich, he opened the Yeshiva there as well. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, the Lakewood Kailal, which opened up as students of Reb Aaron Cutler, Reb Shlema Miller, Reb Yaakov Hirschman. I will try to get to more details of of uh, of these later institutions. They're more contemporary, so if we have time, we'll try to get to more of the contemporary institutions or the history of the of some of the more contemporary institutions in part three. So I will get back to that. I promise. Um, one other uh, prominent individual um, who was who came early on to to Toronto in the post war was Reblipa Vechter was a central figure in the Hasidic Toronto life uh, in the post-war era. He was a Satmar Hasid, very involved in Kashrus at the time, in the Haimish Kashrus. And uh, though he spent much time developing Toronto Jewish life today, he's he's known more for who his son was. His son became Remendel Vechter, who was at the center of the uh, Satmar Lubavitch feud in the 1980s when Remendel Mendelwechter heretically uh, switched from Satmar to Chabad, and uh, that's a whole story uh, for another time, also probably too, comp- too contemporary. Uh, one of the big visitors to Toronto in the 1980s was the Lev Simcha, the Ger Rebbe, who came to stay in Toronto, Simcha Bunim Alter, stayed by, uh, by, by the Bleemans, by Ravram Bleeman, and um, Rabbi Price, 
who was close with all the Ger Rebbe's, so he he was he was involved in 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 in, in hosting the Ger Rebbe as well. So you had a very historic visit, but. Um, Perhaps we'll use that as a springboard to get into speak about some of the very impressive philanthropists, uh, which were some of the greatest philanthropists of the Jewish 20th century, lived in Toronto. I don't know how it all worked out in that family. And of course, we'll mention the Reichman family. They deserve their own episode one day. We'll, we'll have to get to them in their own, the story of the Reichman family. It's such a fascinating story, especially the mother, uh, Rini Reichman, and her legendary rescue activities uh, during the Holocaust. So Sam and Rini Reichman, who are from Vienna, um, they escaped to Hungary and then to Morocco and Tangier and Morocco. And Rini Reichman's rescue activities became the stuff of legend during the Holocaust, which the whole story. But they moved to Toronto in the post-war, and they become very successful in, in the business industry, and then later in real estate. And Paul Reichman emerges as one of the greatest Jewish philanthropists, builders of Torah, supporter of Jewish causes in the world, um, in lo- locally, in, in the Toronto Jewish community, but also worldwide. So we'll, we'll definitely have to uh, talk about the Reichmans uh, on their own merit one day. But another an amazing Jewish philanthropist, Joe Tannenbaum. Joe Tannenbaum, Toronto, Toronto philanthropist. His father, Abraham Tannenbaum, immigrated from Parchiv in Poland, not far from Lublin, and he comes to Toronto, he goes into the scrap metal business, then into steel production, and then real estate, and eventually bridge building and related industry. Huge business empire, brings in his sons when they're teenagers, eventually the sons separate into two different branches of the business. But Joseph and Max uh, Tannenbaum were both community activists and philanthropists, and they joined their father's business as, essentially as children. They're especially active in the Knesset Israel Synagogue, which their father had founded, and the Eitz Chaim schools, which I mentioned. Joe Tannenbaum went on to become one of the most prominent Jewish philanthropists in the world, supporting anything and everything in Israel, in the United States, and in Canada, of course, and beyond. Every conceivable institution has a plaque for Joe Tannenbaum. Why did he want a plaque? He wanted it to be an educational lesson to his progeny, to his children, his grandchildren, and others. Also to inspire others, to be important things that to do with, with your assets, uh, to inspire them to act in that fashion as well. In fact, when on my years, many years in Mir Yeshiva, by davening, I sat opposite his plaque for years and years. I stared at his plaque during the long davening in Mir Yeshiva. I, Joseph and Faye Tannenbaum, I can't forget it. Um, and Miri Shiva is just one of the many institutions that has that plaque that uh, hopefully inspires people till today about where to invest uh, their money in such great endeavors. Hanoch Teller actually has a great book about him and about uh, his life and philanthropy. He was a traditional Jew who actually, over years, gradually became fully observant as time went on. And my a uh, good friend and uh, Srili Besser shared a story with me about his philanthropy and his vision. It was with Rabnata Schiller, the Rosh Hashiva Samach, and he told Joe Tannenbaum, he was known as JT, actually, he told him that he was trying to build uh, with our Samach, he was sharing his vision with uh, with Joe Tannenbaum. And, and, and Rabnata Schiller mentioned to Tannenbaum that people were telling him that it was impossible. So JT, at those words, he lit up, because now it's a challenge. It's impossible. It's also impossible to build bridges. You need a lot of engineering knowledge to do that. So anything like that is a challenge. So he decides he's becoming the patron of our Sameach, and he built the entire campus. And then I have this direct quote from Reb Schiller, the Rashiv Ar Mr. Tannenbaum lived bigger, and he saw bigger. 
And when we affixed his name to our building, he had a message. He envisioned a possibility. Maybe, he told me, one of my Enoch will visit Yerushalayim and see my name on the building and be intrigued. Maybe he'll stop in and ask what they're learning. And maybe he'll see what Torah is all about. End quote. Well, that's exactly what happened. The grandson of his, Yaakov Kaplan, is closely affiliated with Har Sameach until today. It's interesting, at a gather in, in, in Joe Tenenbaum's honor at the Panavish Yeshiva, which he also uh, was a donor to, so Rav Shach, the great Panavish Rosh Yeshiva, he said in a speech in his honor, he said that there are those who donate a brick, as it were, in a metaphorical sense, to the Yeshiva building, which is nice. You know, it's important. But if you remove the brick, then the building won't fall. So Joe Tenenbaum is a supporter. He's a pillar. Without him, the building falls. And uh, Rebellious Svei once remarked that the rebuilding of the yeshiva world, the post-war, experienced a special divine providence because God sent Joe Tannenbaum to be on its side. And uh, that, uh, that it was an expression of the, of the assistance that the yeshiva world would have in its rebuilding efforts uh, during the post-war. So I guess we'll end with Joe Tannenbaum in here in part two, and we have many, many more people and stories to get to in part three. So hang on in there. Toronto's longer story than what we've had for most cities but it should be worth it. Um, such uh, amazing Jewish history here. So this is uh, Yehudi Geber uh, Jewish, with Jewish History Soundbites, Toronto Jewish History Part 2. You can reach me at Yehuda at com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoy.